So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership, and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier, so let's find out why. Hello and welcome to, or welcome back to, Inside the Mind of Champions. Thanks so much for choosing to spend your time with me today. I did have an experience this week working with a client where just before I started to speak to the group, the lady came up to me and said, oh, I've been listening to your podcast just before I go to sleep. I wasn't quite sure how to take it, but if my voice puts you to sleep, then that's a great unintended consequence of making the show. We've had a lot of sport recently, so I wanted to balance that up with some insights and stories from business. As ever, we'll be digging into the parallel lessons that we can pull across into whichever field you work in. You know my thoughts by now that the human challenges we face are exactly the same, whether they're in sport, business, performing arts or the military. Fear is fear. Trust is trust. Uncertainty is uncertainty. It's the way our brain perceives it. So let's keep an open mind today as we listen to today's expert. He's an Aussie, but we're not going to hold that against him. He's an award-winning author and his book, The Change Catalyst, is an international bestseller and he's also a top consultant on the theme of leading change. Let's get a taste of what's coming our way. Victimhood is an insidious and cold blanket that a lot of people cover themselves with when big change is done to them. When people resist change, they've got to remember sort of three things. Creating an open and continuous learning mindset is critical to be able to create a culture that embraces change. No one's going to change If you tell them to, no matter how much you jump up and down with enthusiasm while you're telling them. That's Campbell McPherson. And with so many of us experiencing or leading some kind of change initiative at the moment, I really hope that you're going to get some golden nuggets of wisdom from today's episode. Remember that if you have any questions for future episodes or if you need any support, then do get in touch via hello at sportingedge.com and I'll be back to you as quick as a flash. So as ever, I've been searching through Campbell's interview in Sporting Edge's digital platform and I've taken a few key insights for you today. Now even the mention of the word change gets people in a defensive mood, so I wanted to find out why that was from Campbell. 
Well, there are a variety of reasons, but w one of them is is status, that our, our very identity is caught up with, often in the workplace, caught up with our job, with the responsibility we have uh, in the workplace. Uh, we see that when people retire. Suddenly they retire and they're on a cliff edge and they have absolutely zero identity. Their biggest responsibility is taking out the bins the following week where they were captain of industry. Uh, industry before. But there's a lot of other um, barriers that we also put up to change when, when change is forced upon us. And some of them are our emotions. Our emotions can just take over. You know, we talked about before with the change curve that, that it is all emotional, but those emotions can actually become our identity. We can become that angry person. We can become that fearful person. We, we, we can become the person that thinks negative thoughts about ourselves, and thoughts are just stories that we tell ourselves in our head. What the trick is to be able to to, to stay detached, to divorce ourselves from our emotions, our thoughts, our status, uh, and to just observe them and go, that's interesting. Look at the anger that, that I've just been feeling then. Look at the fear that I've just been feeling then. Look at the negative thoughts that have just passed through my head. So stay detached and realize that they're not you. They're not real. They're just stories that we've told ourselves. Uh, and by able to be observe them, that's the first step to actually detaching yourself from them and then starting to say, okay, they don't define me. What does? Let's actually take stock and move on. Well, this is a pretty profound kickoff that we don't just have to assume our emotional triggers, that we have a choice how we react by thinking about our thinking. Psychologists call this metacognition that we are not our thoughts, they're just data points to raise our awareness. We might get angry thoughts, but then we can choose whether we embody that and become physically angry and engaged in it. We have signals of fear, but then we choose how fearful we become. Changes like the loud bang that goes off when we're in the garden, based on our previous experiences, we'll either think nothing of it and go about our work, or we'll run for cover, fearing the worst. When Campbell's insights opened up talking about how our status can feel under siege with change, it reminded me of the scarf model created by David Rock, which showed that each of the letters of scarf were variables when threat and reward were introduced. So change could threaten our status, that's the S, our relative importance to others. Um, you know, I'm the senior vice president of cybersecurity. Will I lose my parking space? That status is under threat. Certainty, that's the C. Um, our ability to predict the future. Now, if there's one thing we've all had to deal with over the last few years, it's getting more comfortable in uncertainty. The A is autonomy, our sense of control over events. And maybe we don't feel like we've got a choice when change is forced on us. And that can be a bit of a threat. That relatedness is the R. How can we feel safe and connected to others? Maybe some of these initiatives might make us wondering which group we're going to end up in when the change blows through. And then that fairness, that's so important. How fair do we see this new situation as? Uh, and when emotions run high, we can often feel like change brings injustice. So it's a really interesting, um, you know, psychological response to change that can either see it as a positive experience or something that's going to be a threat. As creatures of habit who love safety, we can see why we'd go on red alert when we get these things prodded. We could lose something. 
But while this instinctive reaction is somewhat inevitable given our wiring, we need to rise above that and be able to reframe change as an opportunity for growth and to learn new things. But we'll come on to that in a moment. First of all, we need to understand this natural cycle of change and how it affects us. As Campbell now explains, the same pattern of response occurs when people experience change as when they experience grief. And it's almost like part of their identity has died. When people resist uh, change, you've got to, they've got to remember sort of three things, really. One, that all change is, is, is emotional, as we, as we were uh, talking about. And when change is done to someone, they actually go through what uh, Professor uh, Kubler-Ross, back in 1974, a Swiss psychiatrist, called the change curve, or the grief curve, as she would have called it in her book uh, on death and dying. It was about, about how people emotionally react to the death of a loved one. And the same thing happens in business or in personal life. When big change is done to you, the, it's, it's a very predictable and, and emotional roller coaster uh, that you actually go on. And the first uh, experience that you have, the first reaction to big change that's done to you, is actually shock. So you shock, you just can't believe this has happened. And, and then you move down the curve to, to denial. You just, this isn't happening. This, this change is simply not, not going to happen. When it, when it comes to organisational change, you, you find that, that, that a person will be in denial and, and, and just waiting for the leaders to change their mind and realise that the organisational change is ridiculous. And of course, when they don't change their minds, then what happens to us is that we go into anger. Uh, then we go into fear, and then we end up at the bottom of, the, of this trough in, in a state of depression. Now, and that depression can actually be genuinely depressed, uh, and that's where victimhood lies as well, which is, is something to be, uh, uh, is to be um, uh, averted. Uh, but that depression can be real. If you've ever been made redundant, or if you've ever lost a loved one, or you, you know, you've been made divor divorced, then it hits you like, like a blow to the solar plexus. Uh, and it's real depression that, that people actually feel. So what I tell leaders is that you've got to understand that these are the changes. When you force big changes upon people, these are the, these are the, the emotions uh, the, 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 that your people are experiencing. And, and understand they're going through anger, they're going through fear, they're going to be depressed. But it's a healthy curve. You know, grief is healthy. There's a reason we say that. And when it comes to organizational change or, or business change, grief is also healthy. So it's healthy to get down into that so that you can then start to move on. And you start to move on first with your head. So you start to, to understand that this change has happened and actually I have alternatives. And then your heart starts to actually accept and then you can go, yes, I do have alternatives and I can be moving on and then you can move on. But you have to go through that emotional roller coaster when big change is, is done to you. It, it's normal and it's natural. So while many people will get through change by bracing themselves for the dips and corners of the roller coaster, some might get stuck upside down in victim mode. And that's a very distressing and lonely place, as Campbell now explains. Yes, victimhood is an insidious and cold blanket that a lot of people put, uh, cover themselves with when big change is, is done to them. And they move through the change curve and get down to the depression uh, uh, part. That's where victims lie. And it's insidious because not only 
are you then realizing you're not to blame for the change that's happened? And that's not a bad thing. But suddenly you, are, you, you, you aren't to blame for anything else in the future. So you become powerless. You become, it's not your fault that you haven't done anything about it. One interesting way to look at this was by Dr. Stephen Cartman back in the 60s. And he created this this victim triangle, actually called it the drama triangle, and it's used in sports, it's used with uh, psychologists and, and, and psychotherapists right around the world. And it's a triangle where you've got the three spots. So one is the victim, the other is the persecutor, and one and the other one is the is the um, is the rescuer. Yes. So every victim finds a persecutor uh, and then inevitably finds a rescuer or a rescuer will ride to the rescue of the victim. So the persecutor could be real or could be imagined and the rescuer always tends to turn up. The rescuer is really interesting in that it's a person that looks as though they're trying to help the victim, but they're not. They're trying to keep the victim down as a victim. And we've all seen rescuers uh, before where they'll put their arm around, they'll make them a nice cup of, uh, cup, cup of tea and say, oh, you poor thing, you're being persecuted. But they keep them in victim mode, um, subconsciously keeping them in victim mode. The way out of that is for the victim to start to take control. So the victim to reframe the entire situation and the victim to realize that they're actually um, a creator. So rather than, than, than a victim of circumstance, they're a creator of opportunities. For them to do that, they need to see a persecutor, not as a persecutor, but as a challenger. Isn't this interesting? It's about, it's, it's, it's about standing back. It's about being, um, being objective with what's happening and, and not being part of it. So the persecutor is actually someone who is coming up with these challenges that I need to overcome. And as a creator, I can create solutions to those challenges. There is no place for a rescuer. You need to get rid of your rescuer and replace them with a coach, someone who will help you be a creator and help you see the challenges as being constructive and help you to move on. That's, that's the best way to escape a victim triangle, if you have one. So again, this is something that I think we can all relate to in one way or another. Change demands that you move, reinvent yourself and actually risk failing. And that can be really scary. So it might feel more comfortable and safer just to slump on the floor and get everyone to feel sorry for you. Now, for a few moments, that sympathy might be there and might feel reassuring. But staying there is a big mistake. Not only do you stagnate and people start to frown as you fester, but you also miss out on the amazing pride and satisfaction of overcoming your initial fears. You were too scared to take the first step that you blamed everyone else and got stuck as a victim. This ability to reframe the situation as a challenge, an exciting quest, not to be perfect, but to be courageous and have a go. That's the key thing. Do you have that fire in your belly to get up and go for it, to stumble and slip before you climb up to the next stage. That's what everybody does on that path to mastery. The moment you take that decision to own the change and to drive it forward for yourself, not for your bosses or your family or anyone else that's telling you to do it, then your energy returns. You feel like you're the CEO, you're the boss, you're back in control and you couldn't care less what anyone else thinks. You're pulled forward by the excitement of the adventure and seeing what you could become. This reframe at a personal level may take a sparky comment, a glance of yourself in the mirror or a brilliant question from the coach to get you into action, but it's definitely not easy. And there's lots of evidence to see how change can stumble and fail when it's done across a whole organization. 
So I was really interested to get Campbell's take on this. And as it's his area of expertise, you might need to get a pen to capture the list of all the reasons why change can fail. Right, there are 10 main reasons why, why change fails, uh, and I outline, outline them in the, in the book. But 88% of change initiatives actually fail. So that's a, a statistic that I saw from a 2016 uh, survey by Bain & Co. And it was in January in 2016, and that's when I knew I had the hook uh, for the book. So why does change fail? And the biggest reason is that people don't like change for all the reasons we've, we've talked about before. Uh, the second reason is there's a lack of clarity over what we're trying to achieve and why. So the leaders have just not been clear as to what are the outcomes we expect out of this, this change? And just as importantly, why are we doing it? And the outcomes are, are, are two. There's the numbers that all organizations tend to focus on. And then there's the narrative as well. What sort of company? What sort of company will we be after this change? And then, of course, why? And there's a right reason and a real reason for everything in life. Uh, when it comes to change, these are really important. You know, the right reason for doubling the size of the business might be to... Uh, to be able to uh, expand the opportunities uh, uh, for customers, uh, for more customers. It might be to expand the opportunities internally. It might be to stay number one. All those are great reasons. They're the right reasons. But what's the real reason for the change? Is it purely because we want the CEO needs an acquisition on their CV or, or is it that we're actually preparing the business for sale? And as change leaders, you need to understand both reasons, but you need to understand that the right reason is just as compelling uh, as the real reason. So that's the second reason why change fails, a lack of clarity of what we're trying to achieve. The third one is implications. Very few leaders work out what the implications of the change are likely to be before they embark on the change. And that's why 88% of changes just don't succeed. What I recommend to leaders is get all of your team and their team, the greater management team together, to, to understand, to, to uh, identify what are the implications of this change? What new skills, what new structures, what could possibly go wrong? And then to work out how to overcome those obstacles. And when I've done that with organizations, it's worked really, really well. Another reason uh, why change fails is actually a, an obsession with process over outcomes. So the process of any change initiative is perfect. Everything's done on time, the communications are set out on time, uh, but no one is responsible for actually looking at the outcomes and to be focusing on keeping everyone focused on these are the outcomes, this is why we were trying to achieve it. So it gets lost in process land. Um, and speaking of communication, one of the other key reasons is, is, is that most CEOs purely just use broadcast communications when it comes to change. They don't actually sit down and listen to people and to, to enable them to air their concerns, their fears and the challenges that they will face during this change. Uh, they they, and it's not listening just for the sake of it. It's, it's not listening to reply. It's actually listening to understand. Because a lot of leaders also forget that emotion trumps logic every time. Emotion is four times more powerful uh, than logic. So they will be very logical on the need for change. It will all be about the numbers. But they won't appeal to people's emotional, visceral uh, need uh, for change. So if I don't know what's in it for me, whether it be a, a status, uh, whether not just more money, but it might be status, it might be skills, it might be something that I'm developing. I will own, my head will be engaged in the change, but my heart won't be. So there's a lot to think about there, but I think communication plays a vital role in any pressurized situation. 
Because remember, our brains are built for safety and they'll catastrophize when they're left in a vacuum. I may have mentioned that I'm a non-exec director for the League Managers Association, which looks after the legal, well-being and leadership development for all the soccer managers. And I remember speaking to one high profile manager a few years ago and he was talking about the weekly debriefs that he had with his high profile manager of this particular club. And apparently the owner had said, you know, that he desperately wanted these weekly check ins because he saw a good call with good news were fine. A bad news with bad news was okay, but no calls whatsoever was an absolute disaster. So no matter how bad the news was, he wanted to know because that gave him a plan. And um, I think there's something in that, that if we just leave a vacuum, then people can worry and catastrophize. So here's Campbell's take on the role of communication during change. And it echoes from that football story. Communication is pivotal uh, in changes. If, if no communication comes down from the top because they're uncertain or they don't actually want to tell anyone that they're going to have to get rid of 10% of the, of the workforce, then, then um, that will create an environment where everyone will expect something even far worse than the bad news that the, the, the leaders are thinking they're going to have to deliver. So, so there is no... You cannot communicate too often, you can't communicate uh, enough. Uh, in other words, you'll always be trying to, to, to uh, communicate more, but it's, it's critical that you actually share uh, at every step of the, the change process what is actually going on. But I know what happens with leaders, I know what, what goes on in, in, in their minds is that they don't want to look uncertain, and that's a, another a big reason, not just they don't want to give bad news, but they don't want to look uncertain because a leader is supposed to have all the answers, almost, uh, in, in a lot of leaders' and a lot of leaders' minds. And that's just nonsense. If they actually step back and said, you know what, I don't have all the answers in this. I know the destination I want to get to, but I need to engage my people in understanding what are the implications or, or, or what we should be doing to get there, um, then they would actually get a lot more engagement uh, in the change. There isn't a leader on the planet that can know exactly what's coming down the line. So we'd be foolish to presume that we do or that our teams expect us to know all the answers. It's really not the case. So far from being humiliating, this actually creates an opportunity to engage a group of change agents around our team or the organisation to provide this vital two way sense check of what everyone's seeing and thinking as potential solutions to the next challenges that we're going to face. Change networks, change coalitions, change agents, a network of change agents are really important throughout an organisation to be able to make sure that you achieve the outcomes, uh, make sure you achieve the change in behaviours, but more importantly to make sure you get, you get a, a, an upward path to understand what the concerns and fears of the organisations uh, of the of the people who have to change actually are throughout the organisation. It's it's very important that you do that. But change doesn't happen just top down. So I've seen this happen many many times before. And in fact, years ago, twenty something years ago, I was in the change department of Anderson Consulting, and we used to to promote change agents. We need a network of change agents to spread the word, almost like almost like. Um, uh, evangelists going out and, 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 and spreading the gospel throughout the organization. And of course, what they were doing is broadcast communications on a mini basis. They weren't listening. And, and the communication that needs to be used is two-way because you're, no one's going to change 
if you tell them to, no matter how much you jump up and down with enthusiasm while you're, while you're telling them. So as long as the network is used for feedback, and not just feedback, for understanding, then a network of change agents is critical. Um, and in a sense, they are your change catalysts throughout the, throughout the organization. Uh, but, but also the people at the top need to have the EQ to understand that they may not have all the answers. No change happens if, if a network is just used to filter information downwards. It, it's got to be a two-way flow and a two-way flow of understanding. So this dynamic two-way flow of information, questions, experiments and ideas act in exactly the same way as the arteries and veins in our body. If either system dominated, we'd die. And it's exactly the same for these large-scale change initiatives. And with technology enabling surveys, polls, virtual chats across thousands of people, we can get a sense check of everyone's motivation and progress at every step of the way. And that's such vital information. By providing people with a voice and the expectation and psychological safety for them to contribute, they feel valued and like they are part of creating the change rather than it just being another initiative pushed blindly down from the top without a care for the impact it has on the people below. So I wanted to find out from Campbell what other factors would help us to create a culture which was more positive and ready to embrace change. Creating an open and continuous learning mindset is, is critical for, for to be able to create a culture that embraces change uh, and I think it's 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 not just engaging with with brilliant learning and development uh, uh, firms it's not just about skills although that's important you need to equip your people with the tools and the approach uh, that they need to be able to embrace change when it arrives uh, and look for the opportunities but also to seek out opportunities for improvement and for dramatic change there are many many organizations who, who struggle with this so first the yes it is skills development but it's also culture development so have a look at your incentives how how are your organization's incentives actually incentivizing the behavior that you want because incentives drive behaviors and behaviors drive performance so not just monetary incentives but that's important but, but also um, other incentives, other softer incentives. I say softer, but they're often more powerful. So the, the, the best incentive that there is is peer recognition. So if, if you are giving people peer recognition for suggesting improvements, for coming up with new ideas, um, uh, for helping others to improve the way that their part of the business works, for collaboration, then that's probably the best incentive there is. So definitely skills, definitely incentives. Um, and, and, then, and then work out that the culture starts from the leadership. You know, a company gets the culture its leaders create. So, so are the leaders actually living up to the behaviors that the organization needs in order to be able to be, to be ready for change? Um, so, so how are your leaders actually behaving? Are they, are they living the values? Are your values uh, relevant? Are your values actually those that are the real values on the ground as genuine as the values you put in your, your annual report? Do they match? Or if there's a gap, what are you going to do to, uh, to fix them? So, so it, it's definitely skills development, it's incentives, uh, and it's leadership uh, that will create the culture that you, you, you need, the behaviours that you'll need. 
This is such an important point. Leadership and strategy shouldn't just be academic initiatives. They come to life in the way we behave. Our strategy is what's in our diary. We've made those activities our priority. Our values are the way we behave in a meeting and in front of our team, not just words in the company handbook. So as we navigate and lead change, we have to be the ones who role model calm, focused progress and who celebrate those who get results in the new way of working. These small green shoots need to be praised, highlighted, and then they'll grow. Just like a new well-being habit, a new culture will start small, and then with discipline and positive rewards and reinforcement for those new choices of behaviour that deliver the results, in time that's what creates that unstoppable momentum. So celebrate the early adopters of the change that you want to see, and then the pack will eventually follow them. So we've touched on our natural reluctance to change unless we can see real benefits and they outweigh the risks of taking on the change and the way that leaders need to communicate to accelerate and embed change. But I was wondering what Campbell's final piece of advice would be. Change is not a one-off event. That, that's, I, I realised that when I was uh, uh, running a workshop actually at Henley Business School, when I put up the top 10 reasons why change fails. And then suddenly someone said, there's an 11th. And I thought, that's really annoying. The book is already in print. There's 11th, for, and it's, we, keep, we treat change as though it's a one-off. And that is so true. It's a theme that runs, runs through the book. If you just treat change as a one-off, then it will come back again. It won't actually it won't even succeed the first time, but you need to create a culture of continuous change where change is normal. Change isn't something to be feared and coped with. It's something to be embraced. It's part of life. We talked about before the, the, the change curve, the roller coaster of emotions. That doesn't go away once you've gone up the other slide. The next change will come along and the change curve will be with you. We are forever going through changes in our lives that we will have to go go back to the curve. So so it's treating change like a one-off is an absolute disaster. So what we have to do is embed a culture of, of, of transformation in the organization continually. That's great advice at both a personal and organizational level to prime our mindsets for change, to pressure test our teams for their ability to change and adapt. I think this is another way to judge our success. Did we have the ability to adapt and to change to the conditions around us to stay relevant? Surely success is about being successful for a long period of time, not just a season or a year or a two year period. But could we drop our ego and become a novice again? That's what's so important. Having that courage to stumble in front of other people as we learn new skills and new ways of working and then to regain our composure on that path to mastery. With so much disruption and volatility around, the organisations that have both the situational awareness to notice the changing opportunities and then the ability to exploit them through learning and adapting will absolutely win every time. It's a fascinating area and one that I've been supporting my clients with through the last few years. So if you do need any information on leading your teams through change, then just drop me a note through to hello at sportingedge.com and I'd be absolutely thrilled to help. I'll add a link into Campbell's award-winning book in the show notes and we've got a short digital course in our members platform called How to Thrive Through Change 
So you can see that at sportingedge.com forward slash membership. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, good luck. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.